You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. At a 1983 urology conference, Brindley delivered a lecture about a new impotency drug, papaverine, that produced robust erections when injected directly into the penis. He began by showing his audience, a group of around 80 urologists and their wives, many en route to the conference cocktail party and dressed in formal attire, a series of slides of his own penis at various dosages. He then revealed that five minutes earlier he had injected himself with papaverine. He pulled the fabric of his tracksuit tightly against his hips to reveal the outline of his medicated member. Not satisfied, he then pulled down his pants, revealing, in the words of eyewitness Lawrence Klotz, a long, thin, clearly erect penis. Klotz's account of the event was published in British Journal of Urology International in 2005. And this is a continuation of Klotz's observations. Brindley paused, seeming to ponder his next move. The sense of drama in the room was palpable. He then said with gravity, I'd like to give some of the audience the opportunity to confirm the degree of tumescence. With his pants at his knees, he waddled down the stairs. As he approached the audience, erection waggling before him, four or five of the women in the front rows threw their arms in the air and screamed. The screams seemed to shock Professor Brindley, who rapidly pulled up his trousers and terminated the lecture. Mary Roach is the author of Stiff and Spook. Her new book is Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Thanks for inviting me. This is a, a, a wonderful, yet another wonderful cultural history of what happens when science meets culture, and it's not always a happy meeting. You know, one of the things that really struck me was that how that we've been studying sex scientifically for a lot longer than I expected. Yeah, I think uh, people tend to think that it really got rolling in the 70s, but we're, you know, Kinsey was working in the 40s, and actually if you go you go way back to the late 1800s, it was st people were starting to investigate it. And even if, you know, if you're, you're talking about um, publishing and writing papers, uh, all the way back to Leonardo. Well, my, I love the, the story of uh, Robert Latou Dickinson. He was a gynecologist who, who pub wrote some really remarkable things about the women he studied. Yeah, Dickinson was the one when I was talking about the late 1800s. Yeah, he, he had a, a gynecology practice in Brooklyn from the uh, late 1800s to the early uh, 1900s. And he was, he was amazing because he was the first, he was really the first um, person to really get involved in, in studying sexual anatomy. He published this beautiful, it's called the, the Atlas of Human Sex Anatomy. And it's this, uh, he was an artist as well, and he would d do these drawings of his patients. He also interviewed them very, very intimately, you know, asking them, you know, well, do you masturbate, and how do you masturbate, and how often, and what finger, and, and you know, he was, but he was a, a family man, quite religious. I mean, he wasn't a perv. He was really a, just an extraordinary guy who felt that, uh, given the inveterate habit of our species to get married, uh, we really ought to do something about bad sex, because it was destroying a lot of marriages. That was his, uh, that was his motivation. Well, that's really an interesting uh, approach. Now, he debunked a, a number of myths, uh, clitoral myths. Uh, uh, tell us about some of the things that he debunked as in, right there back at the turn of the century. Sure. Well, uh, he, was, he was really the one to uh, usher the clitoris into the spotlight. He, 
Um, well, he, he did he, he did some clinical work. He uh, debunked the uh, notion that the larger the clitoris, the more feeling. Um, he he was uh, very uh, vocal in urging his his female patients who were having trouble with orgasm. He urging them to to get on top, to sort of take control of the situation, to do things that would uh, stimulate their clitoris. And because a lot of women, uh, you know, we weren't. You know, in the Victorian era, nobody talked about sex, and, and, and the, the 1910, the, the teens and 20s were really kind of an amazingly open era. If you look at, like, sex manuals, marriage manuals, which uh, were things that women were sort of given to before they got married, they, they, would, they, would start, they would start to be references to, you know, change your position or get on top. And it was Dickinson that really was the first to kind of uh, encourage women to explore and uh, try new things. Now, next along came John Watson, and he uh, made a, a close study of one of his students, as it <laughs> happened. <laughs> yes, Watson. Watson is best known for uh, behaviorism, and he was the, uh, he believed that the human organism should be brought into a laboratory and studied as a scientific entity, uh, and uh, uh, hum that human behavior could be, um, could be changed by reward or punishment, and, and, and he felt that sexual behavior should also be studied in the lab. Uh, decided to use himself and his mistress as subjects, uh, so he, they wired themselves up and um, it, it didn't end cleanly. Um, there was a divorce proceeding. There was a rumor that the notes from the experiment had, had wound up in the divorce proceedings, but in fact I think that's not true. But nonetheless, it was a, it was a messy undertaking. But um, uh, John Watson was, he was, as far as I could tell, the first person to really hook people up in a laboratory setting uh, people having sex and to, to study you know, respiration and heart rate, and that was really sort of the early beginnings of laboratory sex research. Now, he also started what seems to be a tradition in sexual research, uh, experimenting on himself. And this isn't a usual scientific procedure, is it? No, no, it's not. Uh, there are, you know, look at some of the, um, the studies of like yellow fever and some of the trans, uh, the transmissible diseases that, that when people were trying to figure out how are they spreading? They would sometimes you know, inject themselves or expose themselves to mosquitoes. So there was some um, self-experimentation going on. But with sex, it, it happened a lot because uh, you, you really had no other option. Who are you going to get to come into a lab? You know, who, who's going to do this for you? It's, it's extraordinarily awkward, particularly you know, uh, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which when it was, you know, it was, it was a conservative era. Uh, and you couldn't put you know, a poster on the bulletin board saying, subjects wanted. So you did what you had to do. You experimented on yourself and, or yourself and your wife. There's this wonderful book called The Heart Rate. It's an entire book about what affects the heart rate, what makes it go up or down. And, there's, and it's written by this guy. And uh, there's several uh, other people in the book kind of helping him. And he doesn't name names, but I kind of pieced together, in fact, that one of them is his wife. Because <laughs> he does at one point uh, inform us that the heart rate goes up when you have sex. And so it's kind of a, um, and he has this wonderful black and white photograph of uh, his wife, I'm, I'm assuming it's his wife's chest with the little monitor across her bare chest. It's quite racy for a uh, you know, 1940s book. Well, we, we all know, or think we know, uh, about uh, Kinsey. Now, one of the things I didn't know was that he filmed a lot of his subjects, and, and you talk, mentioned that, that he 
filmed his staff, and that, that could be taken in <laughs> <Yes>. literally <laughs> in three different meetings. <laughs> Tell us about his filming exploits. Yeah, Kinsey, most people are familiar with Kinsey's interview work. Kinsey did these encyclopedic um, surveys of sexual practice in American men and women. And he, he sat down with people and had this long form that he filled out, and he wrote these books sort of detailing what people are doing and how often and with whom. But he also, he got interested in the physiology of sex. Before Masters and Johnson, who you know, really did it in a laboratory setting, Kinsey, because it was earlier, it was 1940s, it was a very conservative time, he, he uh, set up a sort of an impromptu lab in his attic in um, Indiana. And he, uh, pretty much everybody who worked for Kinsey, at the Kinsey Institute took some turns up in the attic being filmed in various uh, configurations and with various other members of the the staff and uh, and it was you know it all sounds quite um, risque and, and dubious but really it was uh, it was the only way to do it. Kinsey had tried. He went on the road to various agricultural colleges and filmed mating animals, thinking you know he's you know he's trying to study the physiology of sex and he's trying to learn whatever he can from observing and uh, that didn't the animals that just doesn't learn. There's not a lot of overlap between cows and people. Um, and so yeah, he, couldn't, uh, he, he couldn't really um, do anything else. So he, 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 he uh, recruited his staff. Now you tried to find these films. Do they still exist? Yes, they do exist. Uh, they, I contacted the Kinsey Institute and I asked if I could come and, and, and see some of them because I was curious, not just from a prurient uh, sense, but I, I, I thought that it would be interesting to, to see Kinsey in the background and, and see, you know, did he really look like a legitimate scientist taking notes, taking measurements, or was he, you know, getting off on all this? I was just really curious to see what these films were like, and I wrote to the person who manages the archives, uh, his name was Sean, and I, I asked about this, and he wrote back and said, no, you absolutely cannot view, and he called them the Kinsey Stag films, <laughs> which doesn't sound terribly scientific, but they are there. Uh, and uh, if you're a more scientific, if you're, a, if you're a legitimate, I guess, academic doing research, I think that you probably can view them, but not Mary Roach. <laughs> she doesn't get to see them. I, I was, I was kind of shocked. I would think that if anybody could get to them, you could. I, I mean... Well, understand Kinsey is the subject of much hostility from the um, conservative family values groups. He, Kinsey, Still? Yes. Oh, yeah. When oh the Kinsey biopic, you know, the Kinsey biopic with uh, Liam Neeson, mm -hmm. when that was being produced, they tried to shut down production. They picketed outside, and that was a very whitewashed version really? of the Kinsey story. I mean, it was a very yeah, yeah, yeah. They no, should. I didn't know they were still yeah, after. Yeah, I heard him. an interview with the, the filmmaker on uh, on Terry Gross, I think it was, and yeah, they he, he's reviled by them. They blame homosexuality on Kinsey. Yeah, because Kinsey, you know, found out that it's going on a whole lot. They sort of blame. They said, "Well, if he hadn't found out, it would never have existed." So Kinsey's uh, kind of a flashpoint for those people, and so I understand why the archives doesn't uh, don't readily want to uh, let that material out because it doesn't portray him as a <coughs> very serious scientist, although he was. Uh, that's that's interesting that that the uh, revulsion has lasted that long. I mean. Uh, this is a, a constant problem with with research into sex, isn't it? It, it is. It's still it's it's still a problem. It's in the age, in the age of the internet, it became a little more difficult in some ways because now there are these databases of government funded research that can be 
searched by keyword. So it's very easy for someone to go and put in, uh, you know, the word penis or orgasm into these uh, databases and find out who's doing the work and then target them for criticism or accuse them of wasting government funding, etc. So uh, researchers have taken to being very vague in their in their um, the titles of their, their studies, they'll use the word physical instead of sexual, for example. Well, one of the things that was interesting that, that comes up in that chapter is the number of uh, fatal heart attacks that occur during sex or masturbation or other sexual activity. Yeah, I, I, I set out trying to be reassuring because I'd read this statistic that um, most of the um, cases on record were men with prostitutes and not men in their own home, but then um, someone else pointed out, uh, another researcher pointed out that that's because if you die in a motel room with a stranger, an autopsy is done. If you die at home, um, an autopsy isn't done. So it doesn't, these are all under the radar. So uh, a whole lot more people are dying <laughs> of heart attack during sex, but it's not being reported in any database. Not to say that it's happening all the time, but it's, it's not that rare. So I couldn't be as reassuring as I wanted to be. Uh, I, you, you have a lot of fun with your footnotes in this book. And, and this is, I think, one of the funniest books that I've ever read. I was reading it, and tears were streaming down my face at, at some of these descriptions. And sometimes they were streaming down my face just because of what you were describing. But we'll get to that later. <laughs> now, uh, let's talk about uh, Masters and Johnson, who came up with the, the fabulous invention, uh, the penis camera. Uh, what is that? Yeah, Masters and Johnson, they were, they, they were the the first to, to really systematically document the whole human sexual response cycle. Um, you know, Kinsey had done some of that work in the attic, but they really took it and ran with it. They had a whole lab, they had funding, they had equipment, they had a whole, you know, they were, they had lights, they had uh, They were legit. Yeah, they were more legitimate. They wore white coats. Anyway, so, and they, and it was extraordinary. They had 700, I'm forgetting the exact number, but close to 700 subjects come in and have sex either uh, by themselves or in couples, which was extraordinary for the late 50s. And the penis camera was an invention that enabled them to observe and document reactions in the female body that they couldn't see. You know, the female genitalia, and, uh, some of them are inside. And some of the stuff that's going on is happening with the cervix and the wall of the vagina and, and you can't see it when someone's having sex. So they came up with this device. It was a, an, an acrylic kind of clear plastic phallus with a small camera and a light source. From, this is from their description of it. I was not able to see the penis camera. It was dismantled sadly. Anyway, uh, this camera penis device is mounted on a, a motor and it actually would thrust and women, uh, who they were, I. <laughs> would <laughs> love to know. Uh, they would um, basically have sex and then their reactions would be filmed from the inside, and which is truly extraordinary. It it's really is. Now, um, did you get to see any of those films? Uh, no. Uh, Masters has passed away and Virginia Johnson doesn't give interviews very readily. She's quite elderly and um, from what I understand, n uh, not really well. So she, anyway, she, her son is kind of her gatekeeper and her son said, he, he said, um, no, no interviews. And I asked about, well, where is the archives? There is no archive. This is amazing to me. because Really? The there's the no archive in their work? Huge, the Kinsey Archives, huge collection of material and records and films and art. 
Masters and Johnson have uh, no archive. Apparently, I talked to Masters' son, who's a producer, television producer, and he said, uh, Jenny Johnson has it all. I don't know if it's in her basement or what, what she's got. Um, her son said the records were destroyed to keep the subjects anonymous. The penis camera, I was told by another sex researcher, was dismantled, sadly. Oh, that should be in the Smithsonian. It should. <laughs> now, uh, this led you to attend a rather unusual exhibition. Ah, uh, yes. Tell us yeah. about the sex machine, uh, the world of sex machines. Yeah, coincidentally, when I was, when I was working on this, the, this um, chapter, uh, when I had been trying to, I wanted to, you know, go to um, St. Louis and visit Virginia Johnson and see the penis camera. The artificial coition machine is also how they refer to it. Um, I wasn't able to, and around that time, a friend of mine said, well, uh, you should check this out. She's a journalist, and she'd gotten a review copy of a book called Sex Machines, which is, this photographer is an art photographer, and he took photographs of people standing with these quite lewd-looking uh, devices, kind of homemade shop projects with big phalluses on them, basically. And he was doing a book reading at the Center for Sex and Culture in San Francisco, and uh, also, th there'd be a number of the, the machine makers there with their machines, and people were invited to try them out. So uh, I went and I paid my twenty dollars or whatever it costs, and I went. I went to this because it sounded to me like essentially these were penis cam without penis cameras without the camera. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a motor with a phallus, and you can switch it on and adjust the, the speed and the depth of thrust, which was also true of the penis camera. So uh, so I, yeah, it was an interesting. It's one of those. It's one of these buildings down on near Folsom Street. That there's no name on the door. There's a number, and then there's a doorbell with no label, and you kind of press the bell, and the guy doesn't let you in. He says, "Yeah," so you have to <laughs> shout out, "I'm here for the sex machine event." <laughs> <laughs> the, describe uh, the the people that you met at this event, and and some of the machines. I mean, they, uh, what do they look like? I mean. They look like uh, you took apart uh, a wearing blender or some, uh, some kind of household appliance. You stripped it down and you attached, you know, um, a phallus on a stick. Really, they're very simple. Mm. But, they're, but they're not all like that. There's also um, something called the thrill hammer, which is an old gynecologist chair from the 30s. It's this huge device with, with um, you know, places for your legs and, uh, and uh, this sort of huge plunging very loud phallus device and uh, that I mean that one was I, I don't, it, you I don't saw know how that. that guy yeah and that was the one someone actually did try that out that was it you saw that demonstrated I saw that demonstrated by um, a, by um, a woman in her uh, in her 60s she's a sort of a locally known figure who prefers to remain anonymous <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she did try it out um, the thrill hammer Interestingly, I asked the maker of this device. I mean, we're sort of obviously you know, heading a little far, heading a bit far away from um, sex research, but that's okay. I said, w "What is the market for the thrill hammer?" I mean, obviously, you don't build a lot of these things, but what do you do with this? And he said, "Well, um, I make films. It's essentially, it's porn it's pornography for men who don't like to look at other naked men. So they want to see a woman being penetrated." By a big phallus, but they don't want to see the naked guy. It's so it's it's <laughs> pornography for homophobes. <laughs> that, that, well, that is most peculiar. Now it's a niche market. It's a niche market. And, and speaking of niche markets, you also spend a, a bit of time at the patent office. 
and oh, yeah. and unearth. I mean, the, these devices are, are are often patented, and you uh, unearth the decorative penile wrap. Explain <laughs> about that. This is pretty great and pretty yeah, odd. I isn't remember it? how I came across this, but the wonderful thing when you're you can do there's a wonderful uh, website. The U.S. Patent Office keeps a website, and anytime you look up one patent, it has a list of similar patents. So if you're looking up anything vaguely sex-related, sex and you go and browse some of the related ones, you will stumble onto things like the decorative penile wrap. And this is, it's, um, there were three or four of the decorative, I don't know if it affixed with Velcro, if it was metal, I'm not exactly sure, I'm just am picturing the line drawing. But the, it was sort of a, um, one of them was a, um, a snowman, and one was a ghost, and one was a grim, the grim reaper. <laughs> But you would put, wrap this around, and I guess it was supposed to make sex fun or funny. I'm not really sure. Um, and the intent is never really made clear in the in the patent description. It's very technical. You know, a a such and such device which is curling and has an adjustable strap and is you know three centimeters by three. You know, it, it never you never really answers the question that you have, which is why did you think someone would want? A decorative penile wrap that makes their penis look like a snowman, <laughs> or the Grim Reaper. <laughs> the Grim Reaper—that's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. Now, uh, you talk about uh, research into the clitoris, and one of the first uh, women to do this was the uh, was a descendant of Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes, uh, Marie Bonaparte was his great grandniece. Uh, she became fascinated with this notion that there's um, a relationship between a woman's ability to have an orgasm during intercourse and the distance between her clitoris and the vagina. In other words, if there's a long span and the clitoris is sort of off in Siberia and not getting stimulated during intercourse, then the woman isn't likely to have an orgasm that way. And but Marie was, and this Marie wrote a paper in 1917 about this. She uh, had uh, some 40 some women that she interviewed and then she measured them. She uh, did find a relationship. Um, between the, the distance and how orgasmic these women were during intercourse. And the, the sad upshot of the story is that because she herself had a long span, she was a teleclitridienne, which is French for she of the distant clitoris. Wow, uh, what a great word, yeah, huh? Yeah, I, I love to say that word, teleclitridienne. Because she, was, uh, she had a long span, she uh, sought the help of a surgeon that she knew, Joseph Halbin, and had the tip of her clitoris surgically moved closer to her vagina. And she also pointed out in her paper that livestock, uh, in, in some species of livestock, the clitoris is very close to the vagina or inside. In pigs, the, the clitoris is inside the vagina, now, which um, is excellent bioengineering, I feel. Oh, yes. Well, it ensures the continuation of the pig species, yes. <laughs> I'm guessing. Uh, one of the things that uh, you did as a result of this, you talked to a man named Kim Wallum. Yes. And he came up with uh, what he you call the rule of thumb. Yeah, well, Kim Wallen, yeah, he jo jokingly has this rule of thumb because the the distance, the average distance between the clitoris and the uh, opening of the vagina is about the width of a thumb. It, you know, there's a lot of variation in thumbs, too, so it's not <laughs> the best way to say But he it was kind of a catchy thing, you know, with the, if it, he had this little saying, you know, the if the width is, if the distance is greater than the width of your thumb, you are likely to come. You know, he had this, <laughs> I said, are you going to patent that? He went, yeah, right, and I'm also going to have patent a little ruler that I'm going to sell. Uh, he was joking. Um, but uh, he, 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 
he was rerunning Marie Bonaparte's numbers. That was the research he was doing because Marie Bonaparte was working uh, in an era sort of pre-statistics. You know, so it, he wanted to take her data and redo it and see if the see if the correlation still held. And it, he found that it that it did. You know, I, I think it it may be a factor. It's not a huge factor. Mm. You know, you just want to take Marie Bonaparte aside and say, you know. Try getting on top, you know. <laughs> try something oral. <laughs> Don't have surgery. <laughs> now, uh, this led you to your first. Was this your first bout of self-experimentation? Mm, oh, in Cindy Meston's lab. Well, yeah, when when you measured oh, yourself, oh, no. yes, you described I, I it as. He he asked me if I would take part. You know, if I would be one of his subjects, which just basically involved getting out a tape measure, uh, and uh, well, not just a tape measure, <laughs> really. Um, a mirror and a, a pencil and and I did the you know and I did this and I kind of left the stuff and I remember my husband said because I left the tape measure by the on the, the bedside table and Ed said what were you measuring <laughs> it's very hard to explain <laughs> I I imagine so uh, now um, one of the things that that's kind of shocking is that uh, clitoridectomies were were actually popular in in America weren't they. That was something I had I had never heard about. Yes, they, there was this there was this uh, brief period of time where they were being uh, they were being done here in the United States, and it was um, uh, and in and in England, and they were um, yeah it, it was thought to be um, a benefit. It was kind of trendy, shockingly. It, and this is I, I think a, a result too of. The um, the terrors of masturbation, which, which once mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the 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 publications against this, I mean, and this still continues to this day. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you actually, I think, found the the book that is really the incept point for I mm -hmm. think a lot of our cultural attitudes. Talk about the, this book and all its successors, which are it's kind of phenomenal. Sure, sure. It's um, it, was it called Onan? Onan, yes. Onan, yes. yes. Onan the Barbarian. <laughs> Onan, yes, it was. Well, it was this book. It was, uh, and, and it, it kind of set itself up as a scientific book or a knowledgeable book. And it would, and it, it basically anything that could go wrong to, with the human organism, um, you, whether you whether it was acne or impotence or your feet hurt, it, they were blaming it on masturbation. And um, and it, and it was this the the, the things that this that this. Prompted were, were amazing. There were actually devices. Getting back to the patent office, there were mm -hmm. um, devices that were not only um, suits to keep you from playing with yourself. Um, there were there were devices that you would wear while you slept so that you wouldn't have a nocturnal emission. So they it was a sort of this um, it was called the penile pricking device, and it was you would put it on the penis, and then and then if you know if the penis started to expand, it would sort of it would spread apart these levers, and these spikes would appear, and then if it expanded further, the spikes would dig in and there was another version that had an electric shock built in it was it was horrifying and then there were there were people writing these these in these some of these books i don't know if it was onan or some of the others saying children's pocket little boys pockets should be should, should be shown sewn shut that is hard to say little boys pockets should be sewn shut um, they shouldn't be allowed to uh, ride stick horses you shouldn't go to musical reviews you should i mean just <laughs> like anything fun anything good in life was said to promote masturbation uh, and then, and you know, this was you were spilling your seed, you were you were um, depleting your vital sap, as it were, and it was um, uh, it was horrible, the, the the guilt and some of the the emotional 
scars that people, some people, because people believed it. It wasn't just, you know, you'll get hairy they palms. They still it, believe it. They still believe it. It's yeah. not, it hasn't gone away. No. Now, you talk also about uh, fertility and orgasm and this phenomena you call upsucked. Explain mm -hmm. upsuck to us. Yeah, upsuck, another fun word to another say. Another fun word to upsuck. say. Upsuck. <laughs> Sometimes they would refer to it as insuck, and that's not nearly as much fun, so I, I decided I would use upsuck, which is often what they used in the texts, in the journal articles. Anyway, upsuck refers to um, this uh, contractions of the uterus during orgasm, which we believe to suck up the semen and deliver it quickly to the egg and thereby up the odds of conception. Uh, so upsuck was, uh, was thought to be um, something that existed in, in animals and in human beings. There is evidence in the animal kingdom. Um, in the world of people, uh, Masters and Johnson did a quite amazing experiment trying to uh, find out whether upsuck was legitimate. They were upsuck skeptics. Also fun <laughs> to say, upsuck skeptics. And they did this experiment where they said, all right, we're going to bring women in. They got seven women. How they got these women, I'll never know. And outfitted them with a cervical cap with artificial semen. And in the semen was this radio-opaque dye so that if the semen was sucked up, and you took an x-ray right at the moment of orgasm, you would see the upsuck uh, in the, in the x-ray. And uh, that's what they did. And they did, not, uh, they did not find evidence of upsuck. Furthermore, there are researchers who say that there, you wouldn't want the, the sperm to be delivered instantly because they take time to capacitate. They're just, they, they aren't really ready to do their thing right away. You, know, you, don't, you don't want to rush the process. So, it's um, it's a matter of de debate as whether as to whether upsuck uh, does take place or whether it, it helps boost the odds of conception. But in the animal kingdom, there seems to be a fair amount of evidence. Now, uh, you talk about coital imaging, and I have to say that about back in 1973, a Polish uh, science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem wrote a book called Imaginary Magnitude. And in this book, it was a series of introductions to books that don't exist. And one of the books he wrote an introduction to was called Pornograms. And in this book, in this thing, back in 73, he posited that there would be a time when people would do 3D animated uh, art pieces of, you know, film loops, essentially, of people having sex through in an x-ray kind of version. So, mm, wow. <laughs> and this has actually now come to pass. Uh, tell us a little bit about coital imaging and pornograms in the it's 21st century. <laughs> it sure has come to pass. Yeah, there's, uh, there is, there is X-ray. There's X-ray footage of uh, animals having sex. There's MRI footage mm -hmm. from the 80s. Uh, it was a Dutch couple. They were a couple of acrobats. Very slender. Very. Really? Little, little, little people, <laughs> very flexible, tiny people who fit inside the MRI tube and are uh, documented um, having intercourse. This was a very difficult thing to do because at the time they were doing it, you had to hold still for a full minute to do an MRI, mm -hmm. uh, and all the, the men kept losing their erections. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, not, it's a full minute, you're, you're like, ah, mm, we got to start over. So they tabled the whole thing until Viagra came along. Then they were able to actually, they, they did get an image. Uh, and um, the most recent um, addition to the library of pornograms is a, a four-dimensional ultrasound movie. Ultrasound tends to be a moving image. That's what you, mm -hmm. you know, when you're doing a scan of a fetus, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's ultrasound, that grainy kind of motion picture. Uh, there, there is now a, um, 
a four-dimensional version of that. Three, it's 3D plus fourth dimension being time. Mm -hmm. So you can make these little um, ultrasound movies. And there's a uh, doctor in London who's been making them of body parts, and he decided he wanted to film two people having sex. And I contacted this guy, Dr. Deng, and said, well, I'd like to be there for this historic undertaking. And Dr. Deng wrote back and said, well, you're welcome to, but I'm having, we're having trouble finding a volunteer a pair of volunteers, so if your organization can provide a couple, a brave couple, for intimate study, I'll be happy to arrange it. So my organization gave this some thought. <laughs> my, my organization called its husband. And um, I kind of, yeah, I kind of feel bad about this, but I said, I said, you know, you know how you said you haven't been to Europe in 25 years, and why don't we go to London and I'll pay for everything, we'll go see Big Ben and we can go to see some plays and we can go to Stonehenge and we have to have sex in front of a guy and <laughs> <laughs> so describe this experience this is a, a, a unique experience I yeah say. it was if you have to have sex in front awkwardly in front of a stranger I'd have, I would recommend dr. Dang because mm -hmm. he's uh, he's very clinical and he was very absorbed in his you know his dials and knobs and things over on the um, on the ultrasound machine so he Although he was holding the wand to my belly, um, he was um, he was he was fairly indifferent about the whole thing. So it was um, it really felt like just one of those awkward things that you're going to have to go to the hospital and get done, and we'll be over in 20 minutes. It didn't seem like sex. It was very distracted, very embarrassing, very uh, humorous, mm -hmm. actually. <laughs> um, you know, Dr. Dang. At one point, Ed, my husband, was sort of you know joking nervously, saying, "Well." So where's the candlelight and soft music, Dr. Dang? And Dr. Dang took this seriously. He took everything seriously. He said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, wait, on my laptop, I have the soundtrack to Les Mis. <laughs> so, um, Did that help? No, we, we declined uh, to have him play the soundtrack to Les Mis. Now, uh, from London, you went to the uh, California Exotic Novelties. Uh, and, and talk about uh, some of the some of the things that you found there. Oh, you mean the uh, I did go to a sex toy manufacturer in LA. Right. California that was Exotic Novelties is, is actually uh, that's a, a somewhat uh, different uh, different manufacturer. <laughs> there there are two. <laughs> the competing eh? There's a, yeah, there, there are two uh, manufacturers of sex toys that made their way into Bonk. Um, I was down in Chatsworth, which is the um, kind of world headquarters of pornography production. And there's a very large mm, sex toy factory there. Uh, it's, it's um, I, because I, I, at a certain point, I, I got interested in whether or not the people who make sex toys have any sort of an R&D department. And if they did, I thought these people probably know a whole lot about sexual pleasure. And mm -hmm. um, Did they? Well, I contacted this guy, Marty Tucker, and he said, oh yeah, we have an R&D department. You can come down here and you can talk to me. And so I did, I went down there. And Marty Tucker, he's like five feet tall. He's just, he's Marty, he's, he's just great. He's one of those guys that just, these priceless lines come out of his mouth. He was talking about the frenulum, you know, this part of the, on the underside of the penis. And he's going, yeah, it's very sensitive. That and, that and the testicles, the whole rest of the penis you could throw away. <laughs> he was, he was fabulous. Anyway, I said, okay, Marty, I wanted to see the R&D department. So he takes me to this, you know, we cross the factory floor, which is, you know, this huge 
cavernous building with you know people walking along with armloads of enormous colored phalluses and and you know Latinas from Ch from the Central Valley you know rubbing paint into the testicles of, of phalluses and it's just an amazing scene and there's a table off in the corner and a guy's sitting there eating his lunch and I said this is the R&D department he said yeah like right here here's a piece of this this material here it doesn't feel right it's too sticky we got to fix it so this guy he's going to fix it and essentially yeah, it was not an R&D department but um, it was an entertaining afternoon anyway now <clears throat> having covered quite a image you uh, the ne next you discuss uh, penis problems and you discuss the work of Dr. Genglong Su. Yes. He's a surgeon. Uh, could you describe this surgery you call you you saw called degloving? Well, <coughs> he yeah he was well degloving is just part of the just a, uh, yeah a part of the the process. What what he, what Dr. Deng is uh, known for is this. It's a treatment for erectile dysfunction where you you tie off the 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 drainage veins of the penis, in other words, it mm -hmm. keeps the blood in the penis longer. So your erection, if you tend to have quickly wilting erections, it would postpone the wilting. So he does this procedure, but in order to get to the veins, you have to, of course, remove the skin. So he does this procedure that is called degloving, de which is essentially, you know, kind of turning turning it inside out. Uh, it, yeah, well, uh, in a, and I feel, I, I actually, I think in one part of the chapter, have sort of a warning for male, or an apology <laughs> for male readers, because it's quite, it's a little gruesome. But uh, it, it, fascinating to watch. And Dr. Dr. Uh, Dr. Sue was just a, a fascinating man. He's very passionate about his work, and he wants to help as many men as he can. He, um, the day I was there, he was self-medicating himself using acupuncture. He had an acupuncture needle kind of hanging out of his temple, and he was wearing wraparound shades in the operating room because he, the glare bothers him. So he's, he presents quite an image, an, a memorable image. But he's a very serious and very skilled surgeon. Now, this led you to uh, discuss um, the penis ring emergencies that, that uh, are common here in this city, even where we sit, aren't they? Yes, I, yeah, we, well, I, while I was, uh, was in Taiwan visiting Dr. Sue. We were talking about various, you know, sort of simpler ways to treat erectile dysfunction, mm -hmm. dysfunction. And of course, just putting a restricting band on the penis will keep the blood in there longer too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a, a cockering basically. Uh, and um, yeah, here in San Francisco, there are enough. Uh, if, you, if there's no, if there's no way to open up the cockering, I mean, if you purchase one from a, a sex, a, you know, a sex toy store, uh, it has a, it, you know, it opens, it's, it's not just a fixed size circumference, so, mm -hmm. but if you just sort of pick up any kind of circular object and stick it on, um, you run uh, a quite grave risk of it getting stuck in and cutting off circulation and it's, and it's dangerous and you need to go to the emergency room. And if you call 911 with a cock ring emergency, in fact, there's, a, there's even a shorthand that they use because it happens often enough, the fire department will come out and there's a woman named Caroline Paul, who I used to work with, who was a firefighter, and uh, they, she told me that they adapted a, a, a special kind of saw, actually specifically for cock ring emergencies, and she told me one time, the, the, the saw got quite a workout once, there was a guy who um, put his penis through the opening in a sledgehammer where the handle would go, and then got it stuck, so they had to cut through the head of a sledgehammer which took quite some time. She said, I loved, I loved it. At the end of it all, she, the story, she said, he didn't even thank me. 
<laughs> now, uh, we live in a, a time when uh, we we there are we live in a post-Viagra world, and that's a big difference in the perception of impotence uh, yeah. in general. Because before it was it was all our fault, eh? That's right. It was uh, yeah, impotence before it became erectile dysfunction with uh, you know a clinical name and a, a pill you could take to cure it. Uh, it was believed to be a psychological condition, and in some cases it is. I mean, there mm -hmm. are psychological uh, factors, and it is sometimes purely psychological. Uh, but before pre-Viagra, it was it was completely it was thought to be entirely your own, not your own fault, but because of your it was it was the product of your own psyche, and so it was treated. You know, going way way back, treated with witchcraft and treated with um, with you know spells and and uh, and then therapy and you know and then along came Viagra and it turned out that yeah, a vast number of cases could be resolved uh, with a pill. Oh, I was interested in uh, the the missing penises uh, back in 1491 because this is still a problem now. I mean, uh, in Africa, mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. uh, once a month you'll read a report of, of penis thefts. Yes, there was a wonderful report out of Nigeria. It was a, it was a piece in I think it was in Harper's or the Atlantic Monthly where somebody tracked down um, uh, a man who believed that his penis had been stolen. Uh, there, there, yeah, there was this, there's this wonderful book, Malaeus Maleficarum, which is this book about witchcraft and how to undo curses and how to undo mm -hmm. spells. And there was a spell that could be cast where your, pe your penis would go away. Someone would make it go away. And I loved it because there was, you got a sense that the author of Malaeus Maleficarum knew that this had to be at least partly in the person's head because the, the advice was, go to the person who you feel has cursed you and have a conversation. <laughs> and then said, if this doesn't work, use some force. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that was interesting that you talk about, too, uh, is the, uh, the stamp to messence test. Tell us about the postage stamp to messence test. I guess the, the post office knows that their stamps are good for this, eh? Well, the, the postage stamp to messence test was a very simple home diagnostic for erectile dysfunction. And, and it was a way to find out um, whether it was pre predominantly a psychological situation or physical. So you would put a ring of, this is back in the era of, you know, strips of stamps, perforated strips that you would lick. This is, you know, nowadays you peel and stick, that's not going to work. So you'd put a strip of stamps around your penis before you'd go to bed, snugly, you know, sort of lick the end and, you know, make it a, in a circle. And then in the morning, if the, the perforation was torn, it meant that, you know, you'd had an erection during the night, therefore you were capable of physically of having erections. So your problem seemed to be thus uh, psychological. So it was, a, but it's very simple. I mean, obviously nowadays we have two messence monitors that are much more high tech, but, uh, and I, but I called the post office and asked them about this. I said, are you, were you aware, at, you at the post office, were you aware of this? And, and was this a significant source of income? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I said, I, you know, I, I don't get the sense that once you've used your stamps for this, you're going to then use them on a letter. <laughs> so probably not. Yeah, but the, and the guy was he he yeah for a, for a government employee had a good sense of humor about it. He 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 also pointed out that there were some stamps that it, where it just seemed wrong to use it that way. Like there was a Marine Corps stamp, and, uh, and then he and he pointed out that the um, Marilyn Monroe stamps would have been cheating. <laughs> <laughs> now I, I didn't know about this. Impotence wasn't just isn't just inconvenient. It used it, in France. It was illegal. Yes, it was a it was 
um, grounds for divorce. You were, you were, it was, well, marriage was a, was a sacrament. Marriage mm -hmm. was, no, marriage was something that if you, if you violated the, the sacrament of marriage by being unable to uh, have intercourse with your wife, you were uh, committing a crime. You were actually, um, your, your wife could then divorce you and take, you know, you, there would be a you know, revoking of the dowry and it was, it was a, um, it was a hideous situation for the man because what would happen is these legislatures would all sort of file into your bedroom and, and you'd have to prove that you were able to get, to get an erection. You'd have to, you know, they'd wait outside the door and you'd get ready and say, okay, and they'd come in and they'd, they'd poke and prod and they'd make all these comments like, there was one guy saying something like his, and his testicle sack is, is, is empty like a like an empty I don't know what they carried their bullions in, but that but it's just sort of it was it was a very cruel um, thing to do to a man. And and then and for a while they were actually saying that not only did you have to prove that you could have an erection, you had to prove that you could consummate uh, your marriage. You had to in front of these observers, these people with their you know, their clipboards and their pince nez, that's what you pronounce it, their their spectacles. You had to actually prove that you could have intercourse with your wife. And of course the wife at this point who was trying to get out of the marriage was trying to block you from having sex. So it was this farcical kind of hideous spectacle that, uh, but it, it went on for some time. Uh, gosh, I, it, it's so strange. Now you mentioned testicles and we get two testicles and it boggles the mind that in the JAMA, the journal of the American Medical Association, there was an article published about uh, testicular transplants done by G. Gord G. Frank Lidston, who experimented on himself. Yeah, there were there Another. were yeah test <coughs> testicle transplanting was there was quite a craze, uh, and, and initially there were transplants from um, there were there were goat gland transplants, there were um, baboon and chimp gonad transplants, and what they were, they were sort of taking pieces of these animals' gonads, testicles, and putting them inside um, this, the man's scrotum uh, so that he would get more of this vital material. And it, and it was said to be a cure for impotence and also just vitality, and again, anything that ailed you could be cured with a little bit of somebody else's testicle. Uh, and, and, and all that was going on here was, number one, the placebo effect, and number two, often very serious infection. And mm -hmm. it was, it was, uh, not not something you wanted to have done. But there were a number of charlatans who were doing it. There was a Serge Voronoff, he was the ape testicle guy. There was Brinkley, was the goat gland guy. And then there was Lidston, and there was a guy actually at San Quentin. Leo Stanley. Yes, who was uh, transplanting um, testicle material from executed prisoners into living prisoners to see what the effect was. Yeah, right here in our backyard. <laughs> Un unpleasant now. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Arnold Cagle and, and his uh, pelvic floor uh, mm -hmm. exercise video that you actually saw. So what are these exercises? I guess they can actually help you. Uh, uh, well, describe yeah, them to us. Uh, Kegling is, is uh, it's quite well known in gynecological and obstetric circles because it, it tightens the pelvic floor muscles and it's something you know, um, women after, after giving birth sometimes do Kegling to, you know, to, to tighten the muscles and, and it, it helps with incontinence. Um, older women sometimes use Kegels to strengthen their tubal coccygis. Is, is, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. But it, uh, it, it's useful for preventing incontinence. And, and Kegel, uh, Arnold Kegel, I think it's Kegel, 
maybe it's Kegel. Anyway, he, uh, he he's the he's the one who discovered this, and and, and quite sort of serendipitously, uh, he realized some of his some of the patients were saying, hey, you know, there's something else going on here. I'm having orgasms that I never used to. So he then he went on the road and he was promoting um, kegling. It's essentially squeezing the way you would. It's just you're squeezing your pelvic floor muscles, like you what you would do when you're stopping urination, essentially. Mm. So he, um, he, his name has sort of become synonymous with pelvic floor squeezing, and this uh, kegling is uh, usually it's something prescribed for women. But I came across a video from the UK where um, uh, they were saying that it helps it helps male uh, erectile dysfunction, and um, they had this how-to video. It's just it was this spectacularly badly made video where this man, and you don't see his face, and they don't say who it is, but I suspect it was um, the guy who, who uh, sells the product, sells the, sells the video himself, but, you know, he, he would, and he would be narrating, too, and, he, you know, he'd be, he'd be doing his squeezing, and he'd be saying, tighten, 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 and I was showing, I was watching this, and my husband, Ed, was in the kitchen, and he came in, he, like, he thought it was, I was, it was saying, tighten, like T-I-T-A-N, that it was this campy science fiction <laughs> movie. <laughs> tighten, tighten, tighten. Anyway, I, I, uh, I, he claims, they claim that it, that it helps and you can, have, you can order the video for yourself. Now, uh, you ask a, a, a really good question in this book. Um, uh, what, what is an orgasm and how do we experience it? And, and you talk about some really fascinating research yeah. uh, with, with quadriplegic patients. Ex explain how that came about. Yeah, uh, there's, well, I was looking, you know, Bonk is a book about laboratory sex research, so it's really, it's all about the physiology mm -hmm. uh, of, of sex, so that comes down to arousal and orgasm. So I was looking for somebody studying orgasm in the lab, and there aren't very many people doing that. And there's this, there, but there's this woman, Marka Lee Sipsky, down at the University of Alabama, who's, who does really interesting work with people with spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. uh, orgasm is a reflex of the autonomic nervous system and, and the, the part of the spine, she has discovered, the part of the spine that's critical to orgasm is right at the base. It's the sacral nerve root. It's the part of, the, it, it's this region that oversees uh, orgasm and also defecation and urination. So it's like, it's a really key, you don't want to mess that up. That, mm -hmm. uh, you want that to be working. Um, it, and and sh what was interesting is that Dr. Sipsky found out that um, contrary to what you might think, if somebody has a, a spinal cord injury, unless it's in that area, um, y you, can, you can not have any sensation, say, below the chest, not have any tactical sensation, but you could still experience orgasm. You, you, you still, and, and that seems counterintuitive. You'd say if you can't feel touch, how could you possibly feel orgasm, and, but, it, but it is, it's, it's the, the autonomic nervous system is, it's, you know, it's, it's more of an internal, an orgasm is more of an internal thing, it's not a, you're not feeling it on the surface of the body. Um, and, and that's true with arousal too, because of the autonomic nervous system is responsible for erection to essence, right, isn't it? Right, that, that's right, that's right, and, and it's interesting, yeah, the, um, with arousal you get, you, you get um, information sort of going from the top down, in, in other words, visual things, and then also from, you know, from sensations in the genitals. So there, anyway, Dr. Sipsky sort of is puzzling out all these different, it's, it's a little complicated, but she's, uh, she uses people with spinal cord injuries, well, they volunteer. Um, she, th they're an interesting population to study when it comes to this because 
uh, depending on where along the spine their injury is, they can sort of, you can, they help her pinpoint what part of the, the um, nervous system is, is critical. Now you also talk about investigations into the vagina, and you go to the female's uh, sexual psychopathology lab for a vaginal photoplethysmograph probe, which y you yeah. describe as? Well, yeah, uh, the probe is, um, uh, I should say it's the psychophysiology lab, not psychopathology, because oh. I don't, oh. she's not actually, a, she's not a pathologist. That sounds sad. <laughs> it does. It's a little bit scary. Uh, uh, Cindy Meston runs this lab uh, at the University of Texas at Austin, and they study, they study female sexual arousal because in women, arousal is a little more complicated and subtle affair than it is with men. Women are complicated Ooh. in every single manner, no matter how you go ahead. Yeah, women are complicated, definitely. Um, because women, um, if a man is sexually aroused, it's pretty obvious, you know, to him and to anybody else in the room. I mean, you have an erection, it's obvious you're sexually aroused. With women, you know, you, you, if you have an increase in vaginal blood flow, it's fairly subtle. You might, if you're paying attention, you might notice it, but then again, you might not. And if you have reasons to not want to believe that you're aroused, say you're watching some sort of vile pornography, it's very easy to convince yourself, well, I'm not aroused at all. But if you have the uh, photoplethysmograph in your vagina, the photoplethysmograph will tell the truth, which is that you are, in fact, aroused. You just don't want to admit it, or you haven't noticed. So anyway, I, I, was, uh, I was visiting that lab, just sort of getting a sense of what they do there. And a photoplethysmograph is a very simple device. It's the size of a tampon and it emits a um, beam of light that then is reflected off blood in the capillaries and then so the more light reflected the more blood is in the vagina so the more you are aroused. It's very simple. And, and could, could you talk about your experience with, with, the, with this device since I, I believe uh, you, you <laughs> yeah. actually... Uh, um, well here again you know I, I wrote to Cindy Mess and I said well I'd like to, to come because I with all of my books I like to be on the scene I like to be mm -hmm. reporting in the lab describing people and what's going on and with sex research that with sex research that is difficult it's, it's um, sometimes against the, um, the rules of the experiment to have anybody with, with a sex experiment to have mm -hmm. anybody other than the researcher in the room so it's an awkward it's it, at the very least it's awkward mm -hmm. so they would say like Cindy Meston said um, no you can't be in the room when somebody's uh, when we're running an experiment but the good news is you could be a subject yourself great so uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty simple. Ultimately, I was a control subject mm. uh, for somebody's study, and it basically involved uh, putting this device in and sitting in a room and hoping the door is locked, <laughs> and because you're sitting with there in this chair without your pants on, and um, watching uh, pornographic imagery. They're clips from you know, it's, and it's funny how they make these. Is they 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 try to get a little bit of all the different genres of pornography to make sure there's something stimulating for you. So, and they're, they're not, they're just sort of thrown together. I mean, you think real pornography is badly edited. This stuff is just insanely edited, you know, it's just like switch from one, you know, from one couple to another. I mean, the plot is I mean, even worse <laughs> than it usually is. So, but it's very, it's a simple procedure. And, you, and at the same time as the plethysmograph is in there measuring physically how aroused you are, you are giving a subjective rating on the uh, arousometer. <laughs> Cindy must have named this device the arousometer, which is, it looks like a uh, car shift. Mm -hmm. And you just move the lever up or down, uh, depending on how aroused you feel you are. 
Now, this, I have to, I, I'm really shocked that, you know, you talk about uh, somebody in Alabama doing studies, some in, and she's in Texas now, Austin is a little bit more free yeah. thinking, I think, than the rest of Texas. But still, I mean, do these people have demonstrations outside their office? Do, uh, I mean, no. how, what kind of, uh, do they experience any blowback either within the community or within the scientific community? Well, Cindy Meston in Texas, I mean, it is Austin, that's, that's a fairly liberal town. But she's the one who told me that re researchers, uh, because of the business with the internet databases of different, you know, different researches, mm -hmm. you can search by keyword. So uh, that was more of a concern for her that people could, on the internet, track down sex studies and, and single them out for criticism. I, I there isn't any, she's, she doesn't have anyone picketing because. She's th she's in the psychology department. Nobody, mm -hmm. if you walk past the building, you don't know what's going on in there. You wouldn't, you know, in the if you lived in the community, you would never really have any sense of what's going on in any one of the rooms in this the Shea building, it, it, it's called. Um, so no, it's not. And Marka Lisipsky, I, I don't, uh, you know, she's she's a very well regarded um, doctor. She, uh, for people with spinal cord injury, Christopher Reeves was one of her patients, not for any sexual reason, mm -hmm. but um, because she's, she's, she's very good. And, um, you know, this is, it's, a, it's an interest of hers, but it's not the only thing that she does. It doesn't say on her door, I study orgasm in people with spinal cord injury, you know. It, it, you wouldn't know unless you were um, familiar with her work, and you wouldn't be familiar with her work unless you were doing a book. Mm. Now. Uh, you also came across, uh, tell us about the RCMP and the fruit machine. Oh, the fruit machine, yeah, this was a device that, um, it, it, well, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, wanted to find a way to find out um, which of their recruits were gay or not. They didn't want homosexuals in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And the device measured um, the diameter of the pupil because uh, when you're interested in something, the diameter of your pupil, your, your, your pupil enlarges when you're interested. That, that's true. What they didn't take into account when they were showing film images to these people is that a brighter image will make the pupil shrink and a dark image. So you could have shown a dark picture of a horse and the pupil would have enlarged. And it didn't mean that you were uh, aroused by horses, although with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, maybe you were aroused by horses. Um, so it's, it's, it's a completely spurious notion and a ridiculous device, and um, they're not using it anymore. You tell us a little bit about uh, 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 Dr. Shafiq, the, who studies reflexes. This is yeah. a fascinating man. He, yes, he is. Sadly, Do Professor Shafiq, Dr. Shafiq, uh, passed on, uh, passed away a, few, uh, a year, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. um, Sadly, but he's um, he was a very interesting man in that he he lives in Cairo. He's he's doing physiological sex research, and very few people really are just studying the anatomy of sexual arousal and orgasm. Just, it just isn't being done. Most most sex research these days has to do with finding a pharmaceutical tr treatment for um, erectile dysfunction or low libido, something something where there's a practical application. He's interested in reflexes of the body, not just sexual. It's just it's but he happens to have published papers on these reflexes of sexual intercourse that go on that are quite elaborate and Rube Goldberg-like. And I visited him because I was fascinated 
by the fact that not only he does this work, but he does it in a conservative Muslim climate. You know, it, it's it's uh, not the kind of place where you can put up an ad saying, I need some women to come in and um, be penetrated by a, <laughs> a phallus-like device and, you know, uh, to see if, if their pelvic floor muscle contracts. He, uh, he has to pay uh, sex workers to be subjects, or he, he had to, he's not doing anything anymore. But he, um, so he would, uh, that's what he would have to do. And, and I said, oh, this must be extraordinarily difficult. And, and he said, yeah, it's, it is very hard, but what's even harder is to get a cadaver, or a cadaver, as he called it, a cadaver. He said, I have to bribe the guy at the cemetery. <laughs> I have to go in the middle of the night. Yeah, um, the way, he, and he doesn't, he doesn't publish papers in his country, he publishes in Europe and the United States. And he, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was an extraordinary guy. He was, he was doing something that uh, no one else in that country was doing, for sure, or in, even in that part of the world. Well, now, there were some attempts to see how Viagra worked for women, and it didn't go very well. And there have been some drugs to that seek to be the, mm -hmm. the Viagra for women. And you mentioned some of them in your book. Have any of them uh, gone any further? Has anybody? Y yeah, there's one. Uh, the one with the worst name has gone the farthest. It's called Flabanzarin. Flabanzarin. <laughs> Flabanzarin is still um, it, it's it's still going along the FDA pipeline. I I don't know what stage they're at right now, but it it, it is last I heard, which was a couple of months ago, probably three months ago, was the last time I checked in to see what's going on with these drugs. That that was the one that people were most excited about, and it's a it doesn't affect genital blood flow like Viagra. It works on the central nervous system, and so that that makes it a little trickier for getting any kind of approval, mm -hmm. because the FDA tends to view sexual pleasure as a lifestyle issue and not a medical issue. So they want to be sure it's really, really, really safe. Well, one of the things that strikes me about all your books is that uh, they, they all tend to to look at what happens when science attempts to study something that culture just does not want to deal with. And, and mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about your thoughts. You know, you talked about sex and death. So tell right. us, uh, what, what, where, are, where are we? Are we getting better at it, or are we still um, I think that, well, it just sort of depends. I mean, Stiff was a book about medical Sort of strange post-mortem careers, medical research done with cadavers. So mm -hmm. um, it was, it was here again. Yes, it was, it was people doing things in labs that make other people uncomfortable. Mm. People, uh, their colleagues are uncomfortable, their families are uncomfortable, everyone's uncomfortable. Uh, so and, and that fascinates me because it's all, it's all medicine and biology and physiology, and it, and it deserves to be studied. And, and I'm just attracted to it because it is so awkward. Because you know. Someone's got to study it, and that's really awkward. And how do you deal with that? And and what si situations does that um, does that present? So I'm I'm not sure that we've completely conquered this the discomfort that we have. I'll give you an example. Um, in the world of um, cadaver research, uh, cadavers are still used in um, automotive safety. They're not putting them in cars and crashing them into walls, but they are using them to uh, help calibrate new crash test dummies to make them more biofidelic. And 
And so cadavers do get used to study um, automotive impact and make cars safer. But they're not calling them cadavers. Now, I'm, of course, I'm going to forget. There's a, they have a euthanism. It's called a post-mortem. Oh, God. I'm, I've forgotten what they have. But there's like a four-word um, euphemism that's now being used because cadaver, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, mentally retarded. Is, that's not, a, you don't say that anymore. You say developmentally disabled. Be, you know, the word mm -hmm. in these awkward life scenarios. Life challenged. Yeah, yeah, life, yeah, life challenged. Life yeah. challenged biomass. Oh, I got it. it was, it's post-mortem human subject. P-M-H-S. PMHS. So I went. I was at this conference. I gave a I gave a talk at a, a bioengineering conference, and, and um, people were talking about PM, PMHS, PMHS, and they and they said, "Oh, Mary, here's the." They, and they titled my talk, and it was it was public and media reactions to PMHS. And I said, I, "I'm sorry, I don't know what PMHS is." <laughs> well, that's postmortem human subject. That's a cadaver. Uh, anyway, so there's the fact that there's a need to come up with a a euphemism that takes you further away from the fact that it is a dead person says that we still have issues uh, with, with sex and death. There's still taboos, and thus they're still interesting to writers like me. I've been speaking with Mary Roach. Her new book is Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex. Thank you for joining me, Mary. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.